This is Finding Center, a daily half hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is communication in the Lord's Kingdom. William Eggington, a professor and chair of the BYU Department of Linguistics and English Language at the time of this address, will share his BYU devotional remarks entitled, Therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. As was noted in the introduction, I come from Australia, so uh, that's why I think you talk funny. (laughs) As was also mentioned, I'm a linguist. Linguistics is the scientific study of language. In 1979, Pam and I were living a pretty comfortable life in Brisbane, Australia. We had a nice house close to Pam's parents and three wonderful children aged six, five, and three. I had a good job, but I also had a dream. I wanted to know more about how language works, especially for people who are acquiring a second language. At that time, one of the best graduate programs in linguistics in the world was at the University of Southern California in downtown Los Angeles. So we left this good life and went off to Los Angeles. The second day in L.A., we bundled the kids into a borrowed car and went down to the USC campus to keep an appointment with a linguistics professor. I was excited to be finally going to the temple of my academic dreams. We arrived on campus, got a campus map, but there was no linguistics department listed on the map. We found a traffic station and asked a security guard where the linguistics department was. The what? he asked. The linguistics department. He picked up a phone. Hey, Joe, do you know where the ling, ling, the what? Linguistics department. The linguistics department is? After a long time, we eventually found this tiny, rickety old building that was the temple of my academic dreams. I'll never forget the bemused smile on Pam's face as we began this adventure. I'm sure she was thinking, what has he done to us? Thank you, Pam, for your patience, support, love, and encouragement for all the sacrifices you've made and continue to make on our behalf. Most days, I leave my BYU office in the early evening and wander around campus trying to remember where I parked the car that morning. (laughs) Don't laugh. As you get older, you'll have many experiences like that. I look at the beautiful mountains, this incredible campus, and the miracle that each of you represent. I can't help but think of G.K. Chesterton's poem and thoughts about evening. He says, Here dies another day during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me, and with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? This is what I'd like to talk to you about today, some aspects of this great world around us and how we interact with it, with our eyes, ears, and hands. In so doing, perhaps I can provide one answer to why we were allowed so many days beyond the one. What is our relationship to the great world around us? We are told to be in the world, but not of the world. We are instructed to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, which, of course, we take to mean preaching the gospel to all of God's children. In so doing, we follow the example of Christ, who also went into the world. Based upon how Christ went into the world, let me suggest that going into the world means becoming righteous participants interacting closely and lovingly with all of God's children. In so doing, we fulfill the mission assigned to us because we are children of the prophets and we are of the house of Israel and we are of the covenant which the Father made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, 
and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. This is our responsibility to all the kindreds of the earth. Note that this responsibility extends not just to people who are like us or even to people who want to become like us, but to all the kindreds of the earth. Now let me talk about some aspects of this great world around us and all the kindreds of the earth that live here from a linguistics perspective. We are living in times that some describe in terms of two ages, the information age and the age of proximity. Much has been said about the information age where an incredible growth in technology has allowed each of us to have access to vast troves of information. A huge portion of the world's current scientific, technological or cultural information is stored and retrieved in the English language. In many respects, Anglo-American cultural values carried by the English language dominate global behavior, either in terms of people adopting these values or people reacting to them. As native or near-native English speakers, we at this university have inherited a linguistically and culturally privileged position amongst the world's population. In fact, it may be no historical accident that English, at least up to this point in time, is the working language of this dispensation, as well as history's first world language. The information age has a companion. Never in human history have so many people moved around so much, so often, for so many purposes. The global population is on the move. Whether it be through international immigration, internal in-country migration, or through short-term travel for business or educational purposes. This is exciting, but with these movements comes the new challenges of a new age, one that I have labelled the age of proximity, adapting a term used in slightly different contexts. Let me explain what I mean by that term. Over many millennia, human beings have developed modes of behaviour that have grown out of social comfort zones where we interact with people just like us. Beginning with interactions in settings such as those found within families, clans, tribes, villages, towns, cities, regions and nations, we like to spend time with people who share our linguistic and cultural ways. We are most comfortable when we are with our people. Things go more smoothly. But in this age of proximity, we spend more and more time proximate to people from other families, other tribes and villages, other cities, regions and nations. These people speak other dialects of our languages, or totally different dialects. They share different cultural norms that seem strange to us. In essence, we are more and more closer and closer interacting with people who speak in strange tongues and who do strange things. We are living in a world of strangers. This is the age of proximity. This situation often threatens to take us out of our same language, same culture comfort zones. The socio-cultural and socio-linguistic consequences of this age of proximity are not as apparent here at BYU as they are in a place like Los Angeles, for example. But they are here, and it is likely that you will be dealing with them both here and elsewhere throughout your lifetime. We can choose to respond to challenges brought about the age of proximity in a number of ways. We can withdraw into our sameness, our family, friends, regional and national identities, setting up barriers that protect us from interacting in meaningful ways with those who are different. Some of the people of the world have chosen to do this by withdrawing geographically behind walls of national or religious exclusion. 
Others choose to do it in more subtle ways, relying on technology so that even though they are physically surrounded by those from different backgrounds, they can always be virtually at home, encased in their comforting iPod music, their electronic Facebook and Twitter friends, their same-minded political blogs and digital social networks. In many ways, even though they are surrounded by different people, they are also immersed in their virtual tribe. They just have to interact with non-tribal members in minimal and superficial ways. It's comforting and it's natural human behavior, default behavior for the natural man. But as suggested earlier, it's not what Heavenly Father wants us to do. Over the past few months in Sunday school, many of us have followed Paul's apostolic mission as he went fearlessly into strange places, introducing strange people to Christ's teachings, while at the same time coping with those at home in Jerusalem who wanted to keep Christianity within the tribe. He often pled with those at home to welcome these strangers into their families, their homes, and into Christ's church. In one memorable exchange, he argued that there should be no more strangers and foreigners, but all should be fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. Similar to a standard modern church mission, Paul had to go elsewhere to interact with strangers and bring them to Christ. But here is what is interesting about our current times. In the age of proximity, the strangers and foreigners are coming to us. They are all around us. I was one of them. We are strange to them. Our challenge, then, is to overcome our natural man reluctance to interact with those who come from different languages, dialects, and cultural backgrounds, and to treat them as no more strangers, but actual or potential fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. This challenge is not easy. Even when we can overcome language barriers, there are a host of other more subtle difficulties. Let me give you a brief linguistic lecture that focuses on these difficulties. Language consists of sounds that make words, that make sentences, that make meaning. So far, so good. But things get complicated. Consider the following exchange between two people in a home setting. That's the phone. I'm washing the dog. Okay. Those three utterances are grammatically correct, but as a meaningful set of sequenced expressions, devoid of context, they don't make sense. But you know what they mean. By saying, that's the phone, Pam's intention is to say what? The phone is ringing. I'm not going to answer it. You answer it. By saying, I'm washing the dog, Bill intends to say, I'm unable to answer the phone. You answer it. Pam says, okay, which means I'll answer it. Often, things we say not only have a grammatical sense, but also an intentional sense. We say one thing, we intend to mean another thing. This phenomenon is what linguists call pragmatics. You are able to make sense of Pam's and Bill's exchange because you have developed pragmatic competence or the ability to express and comprehend hidden or intended or unstated meaning that is embedded in understandings of particular situational cultural contexts. Your pragmatic competence comes from lifelong experiences dealing with similar cultural and situational contexts. Even when people share the same or similar linguistic and cultural backgrounds, pragmatic problems arise. Consider the following. By the way, many of the anecdotes I will relate here are exemplars of actual published research, 
Citations to this research are available in the printed version of this paper. Let's say an imaginary couple, Jack and Jill, are driving home to Provo from Salt Lake City. Jill asks, Jack, are you thirsty? Jack responds, no. Things go silent in the car. They arrive in Provo, which time Jill turns to Jack and says, you know, you need to work on being a little less self-centered and departs rather frigidly. Jack stares into the void, wondering what just happened. (laughs) So, what happened? Well, by asking if Jack was thirsty, Jill was intending to signal that she was thirsty, and perhaps they could pull into their favorite fast food place at Lehigh. Jack didn't comprehend Jill's indirect intended meaning. This is an example of what linguists call pragmatic failure. As a noted researcher in the field states, most of our misunderstandings of other people are not due to any inability to hear them or to parse their sentences or to understand their words. A far more important source of difficulty in communication is that we often fail to understand a speaker's intention. So, if examples of pragmatic failure abound when people from shared backgrounds communicate, You can imagine how frequent they occur when people from different cultural or linguistic backgrounds interact, which of course happens often in this age of proximity. Here's a personal example of pragmatic failure at the cross-cultural level. Prior to attending graduate school at the University of Southern California, I taught English as a second language to immigrants and refugees in Australia in an adult basic education context. During breaks, teachers at the school would gather in the teachers' lounge and often commiserate about this or that teaching problem, class or student. I might say, I have a problem with teaching a particular class. A colleague might respond by saying something like, yeah, there are some real problem students in that class. I had them last semester. What a bunch of losers. We never talk like that at BYU as faculty, by the way. (laughs) End of conversation. We moved to Los Angeles for graduate school and for a time I taught in a similar context, except at this school's teacher's lounge when I related that I had a problem, my American colleagues gave me unwanted advice on how to teach. I often listened to them stone-faced, suppressing righteous indignation, thinking that they obviously felt that I am an inexperienced teacher in need of assistance. How dare they? As I got to know my colleagues more and as they became my friends, I realized that they interpreted my whining about students as a plea for help, and they selflessly took the time to provide that help. Sometime later, an American teacher started at the school who had just completed a teacher exchange to an Australian school. I heard that she thoroughly enjoyed her Australian experience, except that she felt that she didn't get much help from her Australian colleagues. I imagined that she thought she was asking for help by expressing a concern, but all she got back was commiseration rather than assistance. Even though Australians and Americans share approximately the same language, we do have slightly different cultural expectations that can often lead to pragmatic failure, to be more precise, cross-cultural pragmatic failure. These misunderstandings resulted in me thinking for a time that Americans were patronizing know-it-alls and resulted in her thinking that Australian teachers were unhelpful, especially to foreigners. I have to confess that I even went through a period when I was in those early days living in Los Angeles where I started thinking about know-it-all patronizing Americans in terms of stereotypes, reinforced by a process known as confirmation bias. 
where we only recognize and cognitively register features that confirm our preconceived notions, totally disregarding any non-confirmatory evidence. Sadly, confirmation bias in cross-cultural contexts happens all too frequently. The process can easily become a silent killer of goodwill, charity, and compassion, especially in situations where non-native speakers are involved. Jenny Thomas expresses the problem in this way. Grammatical errors may be irritating and impede communication, but at least, as a rule, they are apparent, so that hearers are aware that an error has occurred. Pragmatic failure, on the other hand, is rarely recognized as such by non-linguists. If a non-native speaker appears to speak fluently, a native speaker is likely to attribute his or her apparent impoliteness or unfriendliness not to any linguistic deficiency, but to boorishness or ill will. Here's a brief selection of some of the many cross-cultural pragmatic failures attested in the research literature. Once again, citations are available in the printed version of the paper. The labels of culture A and culture B in one example refer to different cultures in a different example. Culture A creates and maintains friendships through mutual insults. Culture B maintains friendships through expressions of positive worth. They think culture A's are rude, aggressive. Culture A's think B's have superficial friendships constantly in need of maintenance. When culture A folks come to class late, they enter the classroom quietly and crouch over slightly as if they are wearing a Harry Potter cloaking device <laughs> so as not to disturb the class. Culture B, a high honor-based culture, requires its late students to apologize openly and sit in a prominent position in the classroom. Culture A thinks Culture B students are rude and disruptive. Culture B thinks Culture A's are cowardly, untrustworthy, and sneaky. See if you can predict the results of pragmatic failure in the following scenarios. Culture A's require that most polite conversations end with a series of closure exchanges, such as, okay, see ya, bye. Culture B folks simply walk away when the purpose of the conversation is completed. Culture A expects regular eye contact during face-to-face -face conversations. Culture B folks show respect to the conversant by looking down and away. Culture A is uncomfortable with silence in conversations. Like you're feeling now. <laughs> Culture B, on the other hand, have a long silence tolerance period and don't feel uncomfortable with silence. When Culture A speakers like someone, they compliment them on something they have, such as a watch or an item of clothing. When Culture B speakers receive a compliment for an item of clothing or watch, for example, they are under an obligation to offer that item to the person that is issuing the compliment. Each of the various cross-cultural pragmatic features mentioned in this list is built upon one or more significant foundational cultural values. A much-studied cultural value revolves around personal autonomy, as in who has the power to tell someone else what to do. In Hofstede's Power Distance Index, people from national cultures at the bottom of the low power index are reluctant to tell others what to do and devise intricate linguistic complexities in order to avoid expressions of raw power. Notice how the bottom five low power distance nations are all English speaking. English speakers are masters at mitigating or masking power. 
For example, if you want someone to close the door, you are more likely to use what's called a WH imperative or a WIMP imperative, such as, would you mind closing the door? Then the direct polite imperative, please close the door. Another example, even if you know for sure that the party begins at 7 o'clock, when someone asks you when the party begins, you are more likely to soften your certainty by saying something like, uh, I think it starts at 7. Another example, if you have to give advice, you are more likely to use softeners and hedges such as, you know, uh, maybe it would be good if you did this. People from high power distance cultures do not have such a complex repertoire of power avoidance, linguistic devices, and so from the perspective of native English speakers, they often come across as being rude, assertive, and disrespectful. On the other hand, our attempts at avoidance of power are often interpreted as indicators of uncertainty, weakness, or insincerity. That's the end of the linguistic lecture. You can wake up now. So what has this lecture got to do with our goal of trying to figure out how strangers and foreigners can become fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God? As I mentioned some time back, our language, English, our Anglo-American cultural and pragmatic ways, play a dominant role in the globalized world. In essence, it can be argued that the world is coming to us. Our language, our culture, and our pragmatic behaviors can easily be seen as the default, as the normal. We can almost subconsciously develop a sense of ethnic superiority, a stance that says all these other ways of doing things are strange, odd, cute, interesting, but we really know what the right way is, don't we? And as soon as all these other folks become like us, the better things will be. Let me suggest that this attitude is not going to help all the kindreds of the world be blessed through us. It smacks of ethnic superiority, a trait that President Hinckley warned us about in his first general conference talk after being called by the Lord as prophet. He says, There is so great need for civility and mutual respect amongst those of differing beliefs and philosophies, which I take to mean different cultures. We must not be partisans of any direct doctrine of ethnic superiority. We live in a world of diversity. We can and must be respectful toward those whose teachings and cultures, perhaps, we may not be familiar with. If we are to fulfill the charge given to us by our prophets in this age of proximity, we need to develop a sophisticated ability to analyze language use and cultural values in a conscious manner so as to solve pragmatic misunderstandings. Doing so can lead to positive outcomes. Let me provide two brief personal experiences as examples. My sister and I joined the church when I was 14 years old. We became members because two young elders, one from Utah, the other from Arizona, gained the trust and confidence of my parents, especially of my father. One of these missionaries, Kent Thurgood, is sitting right here in front of me. <laughs> my father never became a member, but he often told me how impressed he was with those two American boys especially with their kindness, their humility, and their respect for his cultural values. Because of their ability to gain my father's trust, he allowed them to teach the family, which in turn allowed my sister and I to gain testimonies of the truthfulness of the gospel and be baptized. This would never have happened if these two young men had not developed a love for and an understanding of the strangers and foreigners they were teaching. 
Many years later, I had the pleasure of having lunch in Sydney, Australia with Elder and Sister Hafen. Elder Bruce Hafen was BYU's provost during the time when Rex Lee was president of BYU. He was later called as a 70 and for a time served as the area president for the South Pacific region based in Sydney. Elder Haven had no historical connection to Australia, but during that lunch it was apparent that he and Sister Haven had become authorities on Australian history, culture, language and pragmatics. He had accomplished this through hard work, prayer, humility and compassion. In so doing, he had developed a deep love and respect for the people he was called to serve. His accomplishments in Australia during this time of service became legendary. These two examples show what happens when we learn to love and respect strangers and foreigners. I began this talk by quoting G.K. Chesterton's poem, Let Me Repeat. Here dies another day during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? I have argued that one reason we are allowed to, and many more than two, is so that we can be instrumental in bringing strangers and foreigners to the household of God by developing an awareness and appreciation of the cultures and ways of thinking and speaking of these strangers and foreigners who, in this age of proximity, are part of the great world around us. There is another very sacred scripture concerning strangers that stands as a challenge to us all. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee, a stranger? And took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I was one of these strangers. Perhaps you were too, or maybe one of your ancestors. My prayer is that the matters we have discussed here today can help us be more successful in bringing strangers and foreigners to the Lord's house. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was communication in the Lord's kingdom. William Eggington gave his talk entitled, Therefore Ye Are No More Strangers and Foreigners. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.